Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Books and Books in Carl Gables, our flagship store, is right across the street from the Carl Gables Cinema. Our indie bookstore is so close to this indie cinema is my idea of heaven. Over the years, we've had many collaborations, and just a few weeks ago, during the cinema's first run showing of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, Kai Bird, the co-author of American Prometheus, the biography that was adapted by Nolan for his screenplay. Join me in a Q&A that immediately followed the film's showing. It is that Q&A that makes up this edition of The Literary Life. In addition to the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Robert Oppenheimer, co-written with the late Martin J. Sherwin, Kai has written The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. He's also written The Good Spy, The Life and Death of Robert Ames. And his current project is researching a book exploring the complicated life and legacy of attorney Roy Culp. Marty started this book in 1980. He signed a contract with Knopf. And he worked on it. He was a tenured professor of history at Tufts. And he worked on it every year for the next 20 years gathering 50,000 pages of archival documents, interviewing 150 of Oppenheimer's colleagues, students, associates at Los Alamos. Um, but he hadn't started to write. <laughs> and finally, in uh, the year 2000, he came to me. We had become good friends. And uh, I was unemployed. I'd finished my last my uh, uh, book on the Bundy brothers, and uh, he he asked me to join him, and he was a very funny guy. He said that if if you don't join me, my gravestone is going to read he took it with him. <laughs> but biography takes time. It takes you know years. The fastest biography usually is at least five years. And Marty was very thorough and, you know, just dedicated to getting this done. Um, and the research, I, I did very little of the research in the book. Um, and it turned into a great collaboration. I did join him, but it still took five more years. So it was a 25-year project. Did he come to you because of interest that you had in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the bomb? Were you, had, he, had you demonstrated some of that interest to him at some point? 
Yeah, no, my first biography took only 10 years. <laughs> it was a biography of John McCloy, who was the Assistant Secretary of War um, d during World War II, and one of his jobs was to oversee the Manhattan Project. So I had written about Oppenheimer in that book. I'd written about Oppenheimer in my biography of McGeorge Bundy. Um, and we had uh, been thrown together during the 1994-95 argument that took, took place over the Smithsonian uh, Museum's planned exhibit on the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II, which was censored censored by uh, the political right, censored by the American Legionnaires and the Air Force Association, who objected that it was not patriotic history that the archivists were planning to uh, present at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum uh, in a 10,000 square foot exhibit that would present a lot of the complicated history that you see in this film. And Marty and I were thrown together. We tried to defend the museum and Instead, the museum's director lost his job. He was fired. You know, it, it was a disaster. But it threw Marty and I together, and we became good friends out of that. And then the book was published in, we said, 2005 or 2004. And talk about how it then became a film. How did uh, Christopher Nolan, what is that journey? What was that like? Uh, it was a miracle. <laughs> it was... Uh, because it was optioned early on. It was optioned in 2006, uh, and that party held it for four years and then gave up after writing a, a script. And then another party came along and worked on it for four years, and then they gave up. And then yet another uh, person came, Dave Wargo, who was listed in the credits as an executive producer, uh, he had studied physics at MIT and gotten a master's and then made a fortune in New York in cable TV, I think. And he was, he, he just had a, 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 an obsession about the Manhattan Project. And uh, he had bought the option in 2015 and got another script written that was terrible. <laughs> and Marty and I wrote a, long memo listing the 108 historical inaccuracies in it <laughs> and uh, managed to get it killed. And finally, in the midst of the pandemic, Wargo, to his credit, got on a private jet, flew out to Hollywood, and uh, handed the book to uh, <clears throat> one of Nolan's producers that he had a connection with. And uh, Chuck Roven, the producer, handed the book in early 21 to Nolan, who sat down and read it and apparently fell in love with the book. And he, without contacting us, in the spring, early, late spring and, and summer of 2021, he wrote 180, well, actually the first draft was longer, but <clears throat> eventually it was a 180-page uh, screenplay. And then he, in mid-September, I got a phone call saying that Christopher Nolan wants to talk to you. And that was less than two years ago. Yeah. That's pretty wild that all of this unfolded within two years. And what was he like to work with? 
at all. Would, was there any kind of, once he wrote the script, did you have any input on it or did you discuss I, it? I had it? very little input other than the book. Uh, you know, initially he explained that he would answer any of my questions about what was in the screenplay, but he wasn't going to share the screenplay. He works confidentially. And uh, that was a little worrisome. <laughs> but, but, you know, the poor author, when you sign a film option agreement, you, you sign over everything. It's like you have no control. Uh, you know, if I didn't like that script and they had gone ahead with it, the earlier script that we, we killed, uh, my only option would have been to take my name off the film. Uh, anyway, Nolan is uh, a very emotionally intelligent, um, just intelligent director. And um, uh, in that first meeting, we spent two and a half hours. I took my wife with me knowing that she would interrogate him. And uh, she did, and we learned a lot about what was in the film and what was not. Uh, she asked, well, is the poison apple incident in the, in the, the screenplay? That's the incident referred to and uh, depicted in early in the, in the film. And he said yes. And, um, anyway, we learned a lot. Of, and then in February, uh, you know, four months later, I got another call from him and he says, I want to meet with you again. I want you to read the script. And he escorted me into a Greenwich Village hotel and uh, took me up to a hotel room, gave me the script, walked out and said, take as long as you need to, to read it. Um, Your own kind of skiff that yeah, went into. Yeah, it was top secret. <laughs> um, and you know, he was about to start, in a few weeks, he was about to start filming. So he, this was sort of a last minute, are there any major historical bloopers or errors? And, you know, I pointed out to him that I could find only, you know, there are matters of interpretation. We could talk about that, about the history. The history is very complicated and controversial and always will be. But I told him I could only find one historical error and, uh, in, the, in the script. And I started to explain to him that uh, he had Oppenheimer at one point answering, well, how many people were killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki as the result of your work? And Oppie's answer was 70,000. And at that point, Nolan stopped me and he said, well, yes, I know that's a problem. I know that's not quite what we want to convey in the because the figure that most historians use is at least 140,000 and may often 220,000. Um, and but he says, you know, that's actually what Oppenheimer said in the transcript in the hearing. He used the the figure 70,000. Um, so he told me he was working on what some way to I fix remember. It. And, and he fixed and he it. He fixed yeah. it. Yeah, he fixed it. So again, he, Nolan was really concerned about authenticity and historical accuracy. There are, you know, and the history is very controversial. Uh, should we have used the bomb? Well, historians are going to argue about that. Marty and I believe, and we make a good case in the book, that, you know, Stimson and John McCloy and others who were privy to the Manhattan Project 
We're also privy to magic intercepts of Japanese diplomatic cable traffic at the end of the war, and they knew just how close the Japanese were to surrendering. And John McCloy actually made the argument that the invasion, the American invasion of the Japanese home islands uh, that was scheduled for November 1st at the earliest was never going to happen because the Japanese were very close to surrendering. So in the film, you recall, uh, he, Nolan has Oppenheimer saying to Teller at one point, well, Stimson told me that we essentially used this weapon on two Japanese cities on, a, on an enemy that was already defeated. Um, and that comes right out of a speech that Oppenheimer himself gave three months after Hiroshima. Um, anyway, so I, I'm, I'm very pleased with the film. I think it's very powerful, and it does exactly what Marty and I would have hoped a film could do, is to get people to talk about the history and to read books and to argue about the history. Well, you know, sitting here in the audience, going through it toward the end, I could feel the emotion that was arising from everybody, including you, seeing it for your fifth time. So the history is complicated. So why don't we throw it to the audience a little bit? And I'm sure there's a million questions out there with the biographer who would have maybe some of the answers for some of those things. And do you have a question right here? And I'm going to repeat them so that everybody can hear them as well. How, do, how was all this information gathered to write a book? Uh, you know, it's very slowly. <laughs> It's uh, you go to visit an archive and you go box by box, folder by folder. And in those days, in the 80s and 90s, uh, Marty and I were Xeroxing things, 25 cents a page. Um, now we pull out our iPhone and take a picture. But um, it's very painstaking and slow. Marty did most of the interviews for the book. Um, he... Uh, did them in the 80s and 90s when some of these people were still alive. And uh, he did them on tape and had his graduate students transcribe them for him. <laughs> um, but now he donated uh, many of the tapes to uh, a website, the Atomic Heritage website. And you can listen to the, the interviews. Um, anyway, he, he was, you know, he gathered an immense amount of research. As I said, 50,000 pages of archival documents, um, 8,000 pages of FBI documents that he obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and then, you know, the real trick is to sit down and, and use that material and weave it into a, a narrative that is compelling and readable. <laughs> Following up on that, I just want to put to bed one question that a lot of people might have. And that is, uh, and I'm going to ask him this, but by asking him this, I also want to introduce uh, his wife, Susan, who is here in the audience, who uh, had uh, Kai, uh, she, is, she is a researcher as well as Kai's muse as well on, on his work. And I'm going to ask the question about the title. I, in the in the film, that the 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 term American Prometheus is used. I think it's by Bohr, Neil, Niels Bohr's. 
Is that how you came up with the title? No. <laughs> no, Marty and I, for all the years that we were working on this, um, our working title for the book was Oppie. <laughs> we referred to him as Oppie. That was his nickname. That's how his students referred to him. And uh, we thought it was familiar and cute and um, endearing. And everyone else thought it was a terrible title, including my wife. <laughs> and literally the, the weekend before the book was going into, uh, after editing and everything, was going into production, on a Friday we got a call from Knopf from our editor saying, uh-oh, we have a real problem. The marketing people say that they cannot sell a book called Oppie. <laughs> you have until Monday to come up with a new title. <laughs> and uh, late that night, as I was falling asleep, Susan turned to me and she says, well, uh, why don't you call it Prometheus or American Prometheus? And I grunted and said something like, Prometheus, how many people are going to remember this Greek god? And I rolled over and went to sleep. <laughs> the next morning at 8 in the morning, I get a, a phone call from Marty Sherwin, who's very excited. He says, I went out to dinner last night with our friend, our mutual friend, Ronald Steele, another biographer and historian. And uh, Ron said he would never read a book called Oppie. But he suggested uh, American Prometheus. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. And there was a long pause at my end of the phone because I'm saying to myself, oh, no, I'm in big trouble with my <laughs> wife now. Because <laughs> uh, Marty was very excited about the title. He thought it would work. And, of and, course, and, I thought and, so. and Nolan uses it. Nolan uses it right quite, at the beginning. of Quite significantly, yeah. yeah. There's that explanation in, in writing right. American Prome uh, Prometheus is stole fire from perfect him. title I think any other, there's a question back there question is what is what was the effect of radiation on the people living in Los Alamos and uh, is that included in in American Prometheus yeah we, we don't write about that uh, much we refer to the radiation that they they were worried about radiation but as you see in the film they have Opp Oppenheimer saying well there'll be some radiation for uh, dust from that will settle in a two-mile radius um, that was their estimate they really didn't know um, and we now know a lot more and they're there is good evidence that many people, downwinders they're referred to, um, were affected, uh, had health, there were health consequences to it. But, you know, Los Alamos was 200 miles away, and, uh, you know, Kitty was there with their two, two children. Um, they didn't evacuate Los Alamos. They had no, they had no fear of it, really. I, well, are there any in, any additional information about Gene Tatloff's death since uh, since the book or after Oppie spoke about it? Not that I know of, no. Um, 
And, you know, in the book, we treat the Tatlock's death as a mystery. Um, and we say she probably, we indicate to readers that she probably committed suicide, but there's some mysterious questions. You know, it's a, the way she went was very odd. She drowned herself in a bathtub. Um, and that's a very difficult way to commit suicide. Um, so in this movie, you see Nolan um, actually addresses it brilliantly by telling both stories. You see her sort of, and then you see a, a, a hand, a black gloved hand pushing her in. So he, he tells both sides. And likewise with the poison apple incident. In the book, we give a very complicated um, account, very nuanced, I mean, uh, of what happened. We know something happened. Did Oppenheimer actually try to poison Patrick Blackett, his tutor at Cambridge? Well, I don't know. Maybe the poison apple was a metaphor for something, but we know he was having a nervous breakdown, uh, an emotional crisis of some sort. Um, and the movie alludes very briefly to the fact that he consulted uh, psychologists. Well, he went to two. Uh, one uh, famous psychologist on, a Freudian psychologist on Harley Street in London, and another a French doctor in Paris. And uh, he went, he was dragged there by his parents um, as part of a deal with Cambridge, who they wanted to expel Oppie for something, whatever he did. And as part of the negotiations, when the parents intervened, they agreed that they would take him to see a uh, psychologist and so we know something happened seriously and uh, and I know the grandson actually of Oppenheimer is the one thing that he objects to in the book and in the film is the poison apple story he says oh my grandfather could never have you know attempted murder well it's not really attempted murder he does go and retrieve the apple back right <laughs> snatches it right out of the hand of Niels Bohr, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, imagine if he didn't, we wouldn't have all those Kenneth Branagh films. So, <laughs> you know, it would have been really scary. Yes, right over here. Beautiful question. What would you, what would you like a reader as well as a film watcher to take from the film in the book and how it's relevant to our time today? Well, the story is very relevant to our times. Um, I, I, I can think of three major reasons. One, nuclear weapons. Um, they're very dangerous. Um, we could, you know, Oppenheimer gave us the, the atomic age and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, but the story isn't over and it could still end badly. It could end like the end of the movie. Uh, you know, we're now looking at a war in the Ukraine and Vladimir Putin has threatened to use tactical nuclear weapons. And Oppenheimer, you know, constantly was trying after Hiroshima to warn people that these are not military weapons. They're weapons three months after uh, Hiroshima in October of 45. He gives a speech in Philadelphia in which he says... You know, you may think that these weapons are uh, expensive because $2 billion were, were spent on it. 
they're actually cheap. And anyone, any, any society, however poor, that wishes to build these weapons can do so. There are no secrets. And they are weapons for aggressors. And they are weapons of terror. And they are weapons that were used in the first instance on an essentially already defeated enemy. So he was trying to tell people, as he was trying to tell Truman, you know, we need to try to create international controls to ban the weapons and to verify that no one is building them. And I think that is still a priority. Uh, secondly, the movie is, a, a lot of it is about what happened to him after Hiroshima, what happened to him in the 1954 hearing. And that's McCarthyism. And we're still living with McCarthyism. The seeds that McCarthyism, the witch hunts that Joe McCarthy uh, <clears throat> spawned in the, in the 1950s are still with us, and they have, you know, poisoned our politics. Um, and I think, uh, dare I say, that uh, it explains the Trump era <laughs> uh, and the kind of the kind of politics that Trump um, specializes in. Uh, finally, the movie, I think, should raise questions about the role of scientists in a society like America, where we're drenched with technology and science, and yet there's obviously many of our citizenry are suspicious of scientists and expert opinion. And we saw this during the pandemic, where public health experts, you know, are grappling with the science, trying to explain, trying to learn from the evidence, the experimental evidence of what the facts are and how we should respond. And, and, and instead of receiving an understanding that science is a exploration, that we're not always right, that mistakes can be made, but we need to respect the scientific quest to find out the facts. Instead, many of our fellow Americans slipped into sort of conspiracy theories and, and uh, sort of know-nothingism. And uh, there's sort of an anti-intellectual theme that Oppenheimer, what happened to Oppenheimer is still, I mean, you know, that we still, that we're drenched in science and yet we don't have any scientific celebrities like we did Oppenheimer in, in, in the aftermath of World War II who are uh, respected and respected and for their ability to get on the public stage and act as public intellectuals and talk about the science. So what, Oppen what happened to Oppenheimer in 54 sent a message, I'm afraid, to scientists everywhere you know, beware of getting out of your narrow lane. Beware of becoming a public intellectual. Beware of, you know, trying to explain science uh, in terms of public policy. Yeah, look, look what happened to our, you know, um, you know, our, our, our chief scientist during the COVID experience. Fauci. He's, Fauci's been quite vilified. I was also thinking along those lines, the idea that we haven't really learned 
much um, in our technological age um, where technology is developed and as a society we don't really know how to deal with it. I mean, just witness what's been happening with Elon Musk and what's happening with you know, social media, the giants of social media. And it's moving so fast. And now with ChatGBT and AI and all of that, yet we as a society don't really have a way of regulating or dealing with it in some way. Oh, absolutely. You know, artificial intelligence is going to change our lives and our economy, and uh, yet we don't seem to be able to have a civic informed discourse about how to regulate this new technology and the same and this is exactly what uh, what you know was Oppenheimer's worry and fear with the invention of the atomic bomb that people were not willing to sort of debate how to control this technology what is the wow moment about Oppenheimer what impressed you the most about it? Marty and I worked very hard to humanize Oppenheimer to uh, remind you that he was flesh and blood and not just this historical icon, father of the atomic bomb. Um, and Marty at one point turned to me and he said, you know, you and I wouldn't be spending all these years working so hard to tell this story if it was just a story about the building of the atomic bomb, just a story about a physicist who built this gadget. What makes it really interesting is Oppenheimer's personal life um, and the trajectory of what happened to him after he builds the bomb, what, the fact that he was brought down and humiliated in this kangaroo court proceeding, and that he had to, in front of Kitty, his wife, talk about his his affair with Jane Tatlock. Um, you know, he was, he was really a, a, a very complicated, interesting man. He was a quantum physicist who understood quantum, but he was also interested in the novels of Ernest Hemingway, and as you see, there was a reference to T.S. Eliot and um, his poetry. Um, he Oppenheimer wrote poetry himself, and he really did learn Sanskrit so that he could read the Bhagavad Gita in the original. Um, so he, this makes him a very interesting personality and there is in the, as you see in the film and in the book you know there marty and i were frustrated at times with oppenheimer's naivete the fact that he did not understand that he was walking into uh, a a situation that was rigged entirely against him um, and he did so partly out of vanity and weakness he really enjoyed the the prestige and power of being able to walk the halls of Congress and the Pentagon and the State Department and have access to to policymakers and politicians in Washington. He there was something about him that you know he did that out of out of some ego. It was a weakness, uh, a natural a human weakness. But so I love the the scene where Einstein tells him, you know, you should. <laughs> You should Stay tell them away. to go to hell. Right. Um, and that, that actually did happen. What did you do to vet the, uh, the, the, the science in your book, the physics in your book? 
Well, um, I'm the guy in college who took one physics course. Uh, it was called Physics for Poets. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine uh, writing about quantum was very hard. Um, but Marty and I, you know, there's not much physics in this book. It's about Oppenheimer's personal life, his politics, and um, what happened to him after World War II. But we had to write about what he did. And um, I'll just say at one, one point when we had a first draft of the manuscript, we submitted it to a number of historians for just for personal comments. And, and uh, we also gave it to Jeremy Bernstein, who was, is, he's still with us, he's a physicist who actually knew Oppenheimer at Princeton. And uh, Jeremy is also someone who regularly wrote about physics for the New Yorker. So he could write in plain English. And uh, he, we thought that he would be a good sort of, uh, he would help us on vetting on, on our language. And indeed he did. He, we gave him the manuscript and uh, over the next uh, few weeks, he read the very long manuscript and sent us emails saying, oh, I'm learning so much about Oppenheimer, and uh, <clears throat> it's fascinating, great story, but your physics sucks. <laughs> do, do you know if Christopher Nolan brought anyone in for the film as, a, as an advisor on the physics side of things? Uh, well, to finish the story, uh, uh, Jeremy did correct some of our language. And it's, you know, it's easy to sort of make a mistake in trying to describe quantum and uh, black hole theory and such. But so there are no major errors in it, but we don't have formula in the book. We don't get into much of the physics. But uh, Nolan, you know, did consult with Kip Thorpe, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, and he had used Thorpe um, on some of his previous films as well. You know, Nolan was a, a perfect director for this book and, and screenwriter for the, the film, precisely because all his films are sort of, you know, he obviously has an obsession with and passion for questions of time and memory and space and science fiction. And so he and Kip Thorpe were our old friends and he consulted Thorpe. We'll take the last question in the back. Were you able to be on set? Were you on set at all, or uh, did you Sue, meet any Sue of the and I were invited on set for one day in Los Alamos, and uh, we got to meet Killian Murphy in particular. He was, <clears throat> after the 15th uh, scene, uh, we saw the same two-and-a-half-minute scene 15 times, you know, different <laughs> camera angles and whatnot. And finally, at a break, they uh, brought Killian over to introduce him to me. And, and uh, he was dressed, as you see him, with the pork pie hat and the brown baggy suit and uh, silver belt buckle. And, and uh, as he came closer, I, I said, Dr. Oppenheimer, Dr. Oppenheimer, I've been waiting to meet you for decades. <laughs> and, and you have a... a Right now, because of the SAG strike, 
you're not able you were not able to the you know the the opening wasn't explain talk about that a little bit yeah just before the release of the film actors went on strike so none of the actors have been able to go out on the road to promote the film so you're looking at the major promoter <laughs> of the Oppenheimer film it's really wonderful that we have the ability to have you with us Kai and I want to thank you so much for giving up your time in this afternoon for the fifth showing of Oppenheimer thank you <laughs>